Pilate issued an order to release it to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a long sheet of clean linen cloth. He placed it in his own new tomb, which he carved out of the rock. And then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and left. Both Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting across from the tomb and watching. Let's pick up from verse 1 in chapter 28. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and rolled aside the stone and sat on it. His face shone like lightning and his clothing were as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women, don't be afraid, he said, I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead, just as he said he would. Come, see where his body was lying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I've told you. Good news. Good news. It was just a month ago that 135 young people uh, from groups connected to Urban Saints travelled to Mexico, uh, the second time that we've done it, to build houses for homeless or poverty-stricken families. This is my group, Urban Saints Kitchen, and that's me just there. This is Margarita and her daughter, a family of six that we built this house for, 22 foot by 12 foot, uh, 14 young people, six leaders. Incredible week, seeing God doing great things. A group of teenagers, 15, 16, 17 years old, building a house that was going to change the life of Margarita and her family forever. Doing something they never imagined they would be able to do. And that moment on the last day, when we stood outside the house and put our hands on the house and prayed that this would be a place of safety and blessing, prayed for Margarita and her family and gave her the keys and watched her open the door and go into her new home and everyone wept. Everyone wept. It was a moment we will never forget. This is John Brassett. I remember when John came into my office in 2007. He used to work for Urban Saints. He worked for us for six years. And then he left to start his own business and then went into the prison service. He called me up in 2007. He said, Matt, I need to come and see you. He sat in my office. He said, Matt, I've been given three months to live. I have cancer. Will you do my funeral? And I'm an ordained minister in our church. I've done many weddings. The odd dedication... Never done a funeral before. Didn't want my friend John Brassett to be the first one. And so I said to him that I would, but I would pray that I wouldn't have to. And so as a team and as his church, we prayed like crazy that God would heal him from this terrible cancer of the liver that he had. And it was one of those moments that I don't quite understand why sometimes God intervenes, but intervene he did. And John was completely healed of his cancer. And the following year, in the summer of 2008, he came on a mission trip with us, and a, a, a group of young people around the UK, sharing this incredible story about God who had saved him from his cancer. And yet, 
It was 8 o'clock, the 15th of October 2009, and I got a text from John to say the cancer's back. And so he wrestled with it for the whole of the following year. I remember getting a call from his wife Joe saying, um, please would you pray for John? He's woken up this morning and he no longer has the use of his legs. I went to go see him in hospital and this disheveled man, this, you get a little bit of a sense of it, this is a strong guy, he was built like a machine, he was, he was, you know, and he was a handy DIY guy, he could just make good anything, he would have been brilliant building houses in Mexico. Lovely wife Jo, two sons, teenage boys. I was speaking at a supporters evening, October 15th, 2000, um, October 27th, uh, 2009. And I just spoken to a group of our financial supporters and I sat down and I got a text on my phone to say that John had just died. So I was gonna have to do his funeral. And so we went to this funeral in Watford, the first funeral I'd ever done, 200 people packed into the place. There is Joe, Chris, Ben in the front row. And they just had this private family time at the crematorium and then we kind of came back together to celebrate the life of John and, and everyone in the place was just gutted. Just gutted. This 50-year-old man who loved God and and loved his family, and loved people. One of the good guys. And yet cancer had taken him. Was it God's will to take John? No. No one in this room is going to convince me that God wants to take people out with cancer. I don't know why these things happen, but they do. We live in a broken world, don't we? But I, as I gathered with those 200 people, I said this. This is a really tough day for us. It's a sad day for us, but we know there's a hope-filled day for us too. Because I absolutely know that John Brassett and I will high-five again, as we often would. Not some kind of spirit beings, but physically hug, physically embrace, physically laugh again. I have that hope. Why am I sharing those two stories? What are those two stories? The Mexico trip with a group of young people and the story of John Brassett. What have they got in common? And what have they got to do with what we've just read? And the answer is this morning, friends, everything. Absolutely everything. And I want us to understand this morning the cosmic, the enormous, the visionary, the transformational power of the gospel, what God is up to. And we're going to look at a lot of Bible passages in a short amount of time. So, let's go right back to the beginning. If you've got a Bible, let's go to Genesis uh, chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, those first three verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens... And the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light, and on it goes. Right at the very beginning of the Bible, we're told that this life that we live is not some cosmic accident. Everything within the universe, the cosmos, was lovingly created 
by a God intentionally and beautifully. And time and time again, as that passage unfolds in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God looks at what he's created and he says, it's good. It's good. And then on day six, the pinnacle of his creation, he creates us, mankind, and it's very good. Very good. Genesis 1 is not a scientific textbook. It's not answering the how question. It's asking the why question. Why are we here? Because we're created by a father who loves us, and perhaps on this Father's Day. The seventh day he rests, and in Genesis 1 and 2 we get this brilliant picture of what we've been thinking a little about right from day one, the shalom of the gospel, the shalom, well-being, everything is in harmony. Our relationship with God is in harmony, our relationship with each other is in harmony, our relationship with ourselves is in harmony, we feel good about ourselves, our relationship with creation, it's all good, it's shalom, heaven on earth. Of course, we all know how the story plays out. Genesis chapter 3, Satan rocks up and he does what he has continued to do since the beginning of history. He causes people to doubt that God is good. And when you doubt that God is good, you'll dislike God. And if you dislike him, you'll obey, disobey him. Doubt leads to dislike, which leads to disobedience. And that's what he does in this moment with Adam and Eve. And in this moment, that wholeness and that harmony is shattered, totally shattered. Jump with me into the New Testament. Paul wants us to understand the significant implications of that. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans 5, verse 12. Paul says this. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. And when Adam uses this word, the world, he's not just talking about the earth. The Greek word that's used here is the word cosmos. It's like when Adam sinned, sin entered the cosmos. It just rippled into absolutely everything, the whole of creation. It was a game changer. All bets were off. That relationship with God, that relationship we have with other people, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with creation was badly, badly damaged. Move a few verses on to Romans chapter 8, verse 22 to 23. Romans 8, 22 to 23. Paul describes it this way. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait for the eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies that he has promised. <laughs> Paul says the whole of creation is groaning, and it's groaning like childbirth. I don't know whether, uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the experience of childbirth. We have two children, Andrew and Daniel. I was there when they, both of them were born. I want to tell you, as a man, it's tough. <laughs> it is pretty hard, you know. You know, it was exhausting for me. It really it was. You know, hours and hours of you know sitting around and waiting, and then, 
and uh, you know, seeing my wife in pain. There was this moment with um, with uh, with Andrew. Uh, Joan had an epidural in the end. She was in so much pain, so she ended up not feeling very much until kind of after it all happened. But with Daniel, she vowed she was going completely natural, no drugs, nothing. That's why we only have two children, by the way. <laughs> and, and so there was this moment in the giving birth to Daniel where I sat on the bed behind Joe with my, my legs around her and just kind of, you know, the midwife giving me instructions, you know, just massage her shoulders and speak sweetly, you know, in her ear and give her those motivational things, you know. Go for it. <laughs> you know, it was great, it was great. I, you know, it's when I became an inspirational speaker, as you can tell. And, um, and I, I, I remember this moment where, where Joe, in some kind of level of pain that apparently she was experiencing, um, reached behind and dug her fingers into the back of my head and started shaking my head. The, the midwife turned to her and was going to like, let go of your husband. <laughs> you do feel the back of my head, those dents are still there. And so listen, I know what pain is like. You know, I've experienced it. But, but of course you go through all of that pain, and of course Joe really went through it, just for those of you who think I'm being outrageous. But, um, but you know that new life is coming. So it's not that just Paul is saying, oh, it's just painful, it's just hard. It's the pain that says, but something good is coming. Something good is coming. New life is coming. And that groaning that creation feels, it's like creation is declaring, we can't put up with sin, and we can't put up with sickness, and we can't put up with the sadness, and we can't put up with the death forever. And the scripture says, don't worry. A better day is coming. A better day is coming. Turn with me to the end of the book, Revelation 21, that tells us, speaks about that better day. Revelation 21. The first seven verses. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne look, said, look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God and they will be my children. Amen. This is our hope. When sin and sickness and death and sadness are eradicated, where we don't go up to heaven to be with God, but heaven and God comes to earth, new creation, new creation, new earth, new heavens. But our challenge this morning is we are living between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21. We're living. And we're longing for Revelation 21 to be fulfilled. 
And so what has this got to do with John Brassett, with Rebuild Mexico, with Matthew 27 and 28? And the answer, of course, is everything. Everything. When we were in Mexico building the house uh, that we had, there were, uh, the first task we had is to dig the foundations. And the ground was pretty hard, but within the ground, as you start digging the foundations, we found huge rocks, massive rocks that we had to dig around and, and kind of, you know, lift out of the way. And you've got kind of 15-year-old young people who are lifting this massive rock. And uh, if any of you have ever lifted anything really heavy, you groan, don't you? You know, like, oh! We groan. I was looking for a big rock outside, uh, but I couldn't see one. So um, imagine I'm carrying one. <laughs> it's my brilliant miming skills coming into play. Heavy stuff makes you groan, and creation is growing because it's it's ca- groaning because it's carrying some heavy stuff that it shouldn't be carrying. It's like a huge rock: sin, sickness, sadness, and death. And it's longing. We are longing for this stuff to be destroyed. Which imagine if your lives, every time you sin, every time you suffer, every time you're sad, every time death casts an unwelcome shadow over you and your family, it's like another rock. It's heavy. And you're dragging it along. And it's hard. And we're groaning and saying, let this be done. Isaiah 53. Verse 4 and 6. Told you, a lot of Bible flicking this morning. Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 6. Notice what Isaiah writes prophetically about Jesus. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. We're all carrying rocks. Rocks of sin and sickness and struggle. And in the moment, in this cosmic, incredible moment on the cross, all of our rocks, all of our sin, everything we wrestle with since broken creation in Genesis 3, it was laid on him. No wonder, Isaiah says, it crushed him. It crushed him. And as we've just read, Matthew 27, verse 50, in the end, it didn't just crush him. It killed him. It killed him. And it's interesting, isn't it, to see what happens next. Jesus shouted out, he released his spirit, he died. The temple is torn in two. The earth shook. And what happens? Rocks split apart. Tombs open. Something cosmic is happening here. There's more going on here than meets the eye. There's something massive. Jesus has been crushed by the rocks of our sin and sickness. And, and, and if that is not enough, this symbolism of rocks, what do they do? They put him in a tomb and they put a big rock over it. But God 
is in the business of moving rocks. God is in the business of moving rocks. And so chapter 28 tells us, early on the Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, the earth shakes again. But this time, representing the defeat that these rocks that buried Jesus, now he stands on top of. They're under his feet. The stone is rolled away, the tomb is empty. He's alive and well with a physical resurrection body that can never die. Never die. This strange thing for us to get our head around that he's physical, you can hug him, you can touch him, he can eat, he can run, he can cook breakfast, he can do all that stuff, and yet he can also disappear and be somewhere else. This incredible resurrection body that will never get sick, that will never die again. And when does this happen? It happens on Sunday. What Sunday? It's the first day of the week. What's going on here? God's making a statement. It's the first day of the week. New creation. New creation. It's a tip of the hat back to Genesis chapter 1. New creation. It all starts again here. Jesus' death and resurrection definitively declare, definitively declare the ushering in of God's new creation. I may not agree with all Rob Bell says in his new book, Love Wins, but I love what he writes here. The resurrection of Jesus inaugurates a new creation, one free from death, and it's bursting forth in Jesus himself, right here in the midst of the first creation. The tomb is empty, a new day is here, a new creation is here, everything has changed. Death has conquered, the old has gone, the new has come. John, in his version of this, is telling a huge story, one about God rescuing all of creation. When people say that Jesus came to die on the cross so that we can have a relationship with God, yes, that's true. But that explanation puts us at the centre. For the first Christians, the story was first and foremost bigger, grander, more massive. When Jesus is only presented as the answer that saves individuals from their sin and death. We run the risk of shrinking down the gospel to something just for humans. When God was inaugurating a movement in Jesus' resurrection to renew, restore and reconcile everything in on earth or in heaven, just as God originally intended it. The powers of death and destruction have been defeated on the most epic scale imaginable. And individuals are then invited to see their story in the context of a far larger story, one that includes all of creation. Or N.T. Wright, a quote from his book, Surprised by Hope, the main meaning of the resurrection of Jesus is that God's new world has been brought into being, the long-promised new world in which the covenant will be renewed, sins will be forgiven, and death itself will be done away with. The resurrection is neither an isolated and out-of-character divine miracle, nor simply the promise of eternal life beyond the grave. It is rather the decisive start of the worldwide rule of the Jewish Messiah, in which sins are already forgiven and the promise of the eventual new world of justice and incorruptible life assured. The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ, and you are now invited to belong to it. Amen. 
Apparently this is good news. That's why Paul reminds us in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus' death and resurrection is about the rescuing of the whole of creation. Jesus' death and resurrection is the catalyst, is the defining moment that gets us from Genesis 1 and 2 to Revelation 21. The cross reminds us that sin and sickness and sadness and death have been put to death. We no longer need to live like old creation people. The resurrection reminds us that the life of new creation must be lived now. We've got to live in the new reality now, embrace it now. That's why Jesus prayed that prayer, told us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth now as it is in heaven. Not just pie in the sky when you die, but cake on a plate while you wait. It's both. This is our prayer. And the problem with this is that that some Christians think, well, if God is going to make everything new, if if our future hope is new creation, new heavens and new earth, if if that's the reality, then it doesn't matter what we're going to do now because God's going to fix it all in the end anyway. And that thinking is so wrong. Because we're supposed to be the people of God who demonstrate the signs of the new creation in everyday moments, the signs of the kingdom. Where we point to it and say, this is it, this is a sign of new creation. You know, a couple of years ago we went to Florida, we went to SeaWorld. Have you ever been to SeaWorld in Florida or any of those kind of places? And, uh, and I love dolphins and I love killer whales. And, and the killer whale show is just spectacular. And it's very moving. There's incredible music. And I just weep through it. My wife thinks I'm a worse. I weep at anything. I was awful when I used to watch Surprise, Surprise with Silla Black. And, uh, you know, it doesn't take much to make me cry. But I, I watched these killer whales um, jumping around human beings. And I whipped. Uh, I whipped. I wept over it. And part of the reason that I wept is because in my heart I knew this is a sign of new creation. This is a sign of harmony restored where animals and human beings are dancing together. Celebrating together. Your kingdom come now. Your will be done now. Heaven as it is on earth. Earth as it is on heaven. This story tells us that because of what Jesus has done, I absolutely definitively have hope that John Brass and I will hug. I will. I, I know I will. I know it's coming. The scripture promises me, the canvas from Genesis to Revelation, Revelation tell me this is true. A better day is coming in this life that's but a breath. But I'm also challenged today that I have this kingdom responsibility to start to see the new creation happening now. To cooperate with God now that there are the signs of the kingdom now. You see, because in the new creation, there is no poverty. In the new creation, there is no injustice. In the new creation, there's no homelessness. In the new creation, there's no famine. And so when 14 young people travel from Hitchin to Mexico and they build a house, it's a sign of new creation. Because in the new creation, these things don't happen. It's a marker to say, this is what the new creation will be like. 
Again, in Surprised by Hope, M.T. Wright says this, Every act of love, gratitude and kindness, every work of art inspired by love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures, And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed which spreads the gospel, which builds up the church and embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honoured in the world. All of this finds its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation which God will one day make. That is the logic of the mission of God. God's recreation of his wonderful world has begun with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as God's people live in the risen Christ and the power of the Spirit. This means that what we do in Christ and by the Spirit in the present is not wasted. What you do for Jesus today counts. And it counts for all eternity. That's why if you look, and I've got time this morning, look at 1 Corinthians 15, this incredible passage where Paul speaks about the hope of the resurrection. That if there is no resurrection, we, all of creation, is doomed. We've wasted a weekend. We could have stayed in our houses rather than tents, for those of you who did. (laughs) But Jesus Christ is alive. He is alive, friends. Jesus, do you, do you get it? Jesus is alive. He's, the reason that no one has found the body is because he's alive. He's alive today and he is restoring the whole of creation. And because we know him and embrace him, he's drawing us into this massive cosmic plan to see it happen in Burlington, in our towns, in our cities, all over the world, his kingdom come. And that's why at the end of this wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, I love the way Eugene Peterson renders it. With all this going for us, my dear friends, stand your ground and don't hold back. Throw yourselves into the work of the master, confident that nothing you do for him is a waste of time or effort. Nothing that you do. Sitting alongside a lady weeping in an airport in Denver, it's a sign of the kingdom. Nothing that you do for Christ is a waste of time or effort. Let me finish with these words. The time is gone. These are words taken from Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 17. And I want us to read this together as a prayer. All I've done is slightly adapted it so that we can personalize it. A great prayer for us today uh, as I finish. If it unfolds on the PowerPoint, it will get there. And uh, can we stand? It's on two slides, so or two or three slides. Yeah. And let's read this together as our commitment to God to say, as we want to embrace Jesus and the life of Jesus and the life of the kingdom, as we get a sense afresh this morning of the cosmic, the universal, the unbelievable transformation that God has wrought for all of creation through the cross and his resurrection, that we say, I'm in. I want some of that. Count me in. Let's read these words. 
Since I have been raised with Christ, I set my heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I set my mind on things above, not on earthly things. For my old life is dead, and my new life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is my life, appears, then I will also appear with him in glory. So today, I put to death whatever belongs to my old earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. I used to walk in these ways, in the ways I liked to lived. But now I rid myself of anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language. I reject lying to others since I've taken off my old self with its destructive practices. And today I put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Therefore, as someone chosen by God, holy and dearly loved, I clothe myself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. I will be patient with others and forgive them. I choose to forgive because the Lord forgave me. And over all these virtues I put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. May the peace of Christ rule in my heart today, since as a member of his one body I've been called to live at peace. And finally, I am thankful today. May the message of Christ dwell richly in me, and may my heart overflow with thankfulness to God and to whom all I meet. And whatever I do, whether in word or deed, I do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen.